I'm wanting to deal with something quite different today in that I'm going to start working through the Acts of the Apostles and um, beginning at chapter 1. So this really is only a beginning. Anyway, I'm using the authorized version, okay? Uh, we believe that this book, the Acts of the Apostles, was written by Luke. Uh, because he also refers in the first verse to the previous writing, which would have been Luke's Gospel. And in that previous, as you know, as he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, um, the previous writing was all that Jesus both uh, did and taught during his life, until, as in verse 2 it says quite clearly, until the day in which was taken up into heaven. And what he gave to us was given through the Holy Spirit uh, to the apostles that he had chosen. And it's quite interesting to see this, that the teaching and the commandments were given originally to the apostles. And if one questions the teaching of the New Testament, it is quite clearly stated here once and for all, and I have to make this point, that the writing of what Jesus began to do and teach till he was taken into heaven, he gave through the Holy Spirit commandments to the chosen apostles. And remember that he chose 12 but one of them, of course, Judas, betrayed him and subsequently died. So we'll look at that in a moment. So in verse 2, um, it says, sorry, in verse 3, it, it, it says that he showed himself alive after his death by many infallible proofs being seen of the disciples for 40 days, during which he was still speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And I want to emphasize here that there is no question about his resurrection. In fact, one thing in my teenage years that really moved me was a book called Who Moved the Stone? written by uh, an agnostic or an atheist who set out to disprove the resurrection because he and a comrade felt that if they could prove that there was no resurrection, then it destroys the power of the gospel. And the miracle is, as he says in the book, as he researched the evidence to disprove the resurrection, he became utterly and totally convinced that it did happen and gave his life to Christ. During the book, <laughs> it's a wonderful book. So we aren't going to question the authority of the Bible or the evidence of witnesses that Jesus did appear 40 days after his resurrection, um, after his death, 40 days, 
in which time he did speak to his disciples, meet them. Um, on one occasion, he cooked um, a meal for them, the fish, and um, so on. But in verse 4, it's saying, being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. That's important. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he says he'd told them about. For in verse 5, John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days in the future. Verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom again to Israel? I find that this is a very critical point in the narrative because what the disciples had learned from Jesus, the the tremendous importance of the coming kingdom. In fact, the more I, as an evangelist, the more I study the Gospels, the more I'm convinced that Jesus spent more time actually talking about his coming kingdom than he did actually about salvation. Not that he neglected salvation, but the importance was so strong and the belief in the return of Jesus so clear in the minds of the disciples that he, they believe, as Jesus says, that the Holy Spirit will come in a very short time. They really believed that at that time Jesus would miraculously bring about the kingdom and the salvation of the Jewish people. Therefore, in verse 7, he has to answer them and say, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. So it's quite clear from verse 7 that Jesus is saying, we will not know in advance the time or the season when Christ will return. And we know that 2,000 years have passed, but we do believe that what the Bible refers to as the uh, ages of uh, the Scripture, um, that the Bible actually records a total of 6,000 years from creation to the flood, 2,000 years, from the flood to the time of Christ, 2,000 years, and from the time of Christ to now, a further 2,000 years. And as the scripture says, a day with the Lord are as a thousand years, and we know that Christ is to reign on the earth. And we have to get this right. Christ is to reign here on this earth, not for an unlimited time, not for an eternity, but for 1,000 years. 
represented by the Sabbath in the Jewish week, six working days and the Sabbath, which will be a time of rest and of peace. And during that thousand years, I believe the scripture is quite clear. It speaks about it. The lion will lie down with the lamb. There will be no more wars and fighting. There will be peace. And what Christ will do, and this is Christ Jesus himself, the Messiah, will, with help from us, restore the world back to what it was before the fall when man sinned. Now, at the end of the thousand years comes the final judgment when the earth will be destroyed. And then comes, as Revelation says, a new heaven and a new earth. So, having given that brief glimpse into the future, we now come back to verse 7 where Jesus says, don't bother about the times or the seasons. Be concerned about today. Because in verse 8, one of the most important things Jesus ever said, you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be the witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the whole world. So the emphasis of Jesus very clearly in his last words to his disciples, because this is just before he's taken up, in his last words to his disciples, he says, the whole concentration is this. You have to be the witnesses, and the Holy Spirit I will send will be the power to enable you to do it. And, you know, I spent some time four or five years ago uh, in one of my prayer works, and I was really talking to the Holy Spirit. And I said, Holy Spirit, you know Jesus better than any of us. I want you to tell me what was the key to the power that Jesus had. And it became absolutely clear as the Holy Spirit revealed to me from Scripture that when Jesus was born, he gave up his heavenly power and heavenly authority and lived as a man limited as we are limited. And it wasn't until after his baptism with John in the Jordan when the Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove that from that moment he received the power which transformed his life. And what he is saying here is to these humble men, including Peter, who only days before at the trial had denied that he knew Jesus, denied Jesus three times, as you know. But Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit is come, he will give you the power to transform your lives so that you can fulfill this ministry. And in verse 9, of course, we come to this. And when he had said this, while they watched, he was taken up 
and a cloud received him out of their sight. So literally, the last commandment, the last message from Jesus is wait. They had to wait another 10 days, that's all, until the 50th day, 50 days, Pentecost 50. And what he's saying, wait, because when the Holy Spirit is come, everything will change. You who have no power in yourselves will be transformed by the same power that transformed Jesus, and you will continue the works of Jesus. So verse 10, while they watched and looked towards heaven as he went up, two men stood by them in white clothes. And in verse 11, this is what the men said. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall come back in the same way as you have seen him go. Now, this is quite clear. This uh, quite clearly states how Jesus will come back. He was taken from the apostles, and they saw him go. And I believe that exactly the same, when he comes back, we shall see him come back. Hmm. The result in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. They were on the Mount of Olives, by the way, when that happened. And verse 13 says, when they were come in, they went into an upper room where Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, and James, and Simon, and also Judas, the brother of James, these 11 continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here we have the first gathering of what was to become the church, and it comprises not the 12, because Judas is gone, the 11 apostles, the family of Jesus, his mother, and his brothers. It's quite significant. You know, it's very significant the way that we don't read an awful lot about his brother, the brothers of Jesus during the Gospels, but now here they are. And to me, this is very significant. They're all there, his mother and his brothers. I'm assuming that his father probably had died because he's not mentioned any further. And then, verse 15, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, and it says quite clearly the number of people was about 120. It doesn't say precisely. <laughs> I think we assume that it was exactly, but it says about 120. And this is what Peter is saying, verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture 
needs to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of David, spoke before concerning Jesus, which betrayed Jesus. So have you got it right? Peter's first comments here, this scripture has to be fulfilled, that which the Holy Ghost, by David, uh, said beforehand concerning Judas, who was to betray him. Verse 17, he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. And you know, it's very, very interesting because Judas was obviously one of the 12 chosen. And sometimes I ask the question, why, when Jesus must have known from the beginning that Judas was a thief, yes, the scripture says he was a thief because he was taking money from the common purse, and Jesus must also have known because it was prophesied that Judas would betray him. And it leads me to the inescapable fact that even in this, there was a purpose because somebody had to betray Jesus in order that he would be taken and die. Sadly, it was Judas that fulfilled that. And then in verse 18, it tells how he died. It says, Judas bought a field with the reward from the Jews, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and his stomach came out. Everything came out. It, it must have been a horrible death. And in verse 19, it was known among all those living in Jerusalem, so much so that in the Jewish language, the field is called Akodama, that is to say, the field of blood. I have been there so many times because, interestingly enough, it's not far from the Dung Gate. And I think there's a significance that, in actual fact, the field that Judas bought was where they tipped the rubbish out of the city. And to me, it's very strange that a man, maybe it's all he could afford, I, but I think much more it's a fulfillment of prophecy that the field he bought was the field which was used to dispose of the rubbish from the city of Jerusalem. And that's where he died. It's not built on today. You can still see it. And in verse 20, for it's written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate. Yeah, that field still is today. Let no man dwell there. Correct. Nobody lives there. And his bishopric let another take. So another one was to be appointed to replace Judas. 
Now, from here on, you see what happens. Now, Peter is saying, which of the men that have been with us throughout and were with us in the time when Jesus was there and, and were familiar with him? And um, he's saying there must be some who uh, were with us together and with Jesus right from the time of when John baptized Jesus right until the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. And one of those men must be ordained as a witness of his resurrection. Notice the witness of the resurrection. Notice the importance here on being witness to the resurrection. And so they chose two. And they prayed and they said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which of the two you have chosen. Hmm. So that he may take part of the ministry and the apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. And that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was counted with the 11 disciples, making up the number. But I find it's very interesting that as you read through the Acts of the Apostles, my own personal belief is that it was not Matthias who was the chosen one. I believe it was Paul. Because the significance is that of all the apostles, the one who probably says more and does more than any of the others, was Paul. And you know how he was converted on the Damascus Road, how Paul, uh, or Saul as he was at the beginning, was persecuting the church. He was there holding the clothes of those who stoned Stephen, the first martyr. And in actual fact, when Saul was converted, he was on the road to Damascus, and you know where that is, <laughs> it's in Syria now, he was on the road to Damascus because the news had already spread, and he was going there with letters of authority from the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, letters of authority to imprison and, if necessary, kill these new Christian believers. And while he was on the way, he was struck down by the Lord. And as you know, there he found Jesus. We'll deal with that later as we come to it. But I do believe the miraculous conversion of Paul on the Damascus Road was the appointment of the twelfth. It's very interesting because, of course, he was not known to the eleven, and it becomes quite clear that he didn't actually see the whole ministry of Jesus. Uh, there's not much record of him earlier before um, he was stoning Stephen. And it's quite amazing how I believe it's very symbolic the way that Saul, who became Paul, was chosen was an illustration how down through the centuries following the time of the Acts of the Apostles, God is calling out and choosing men 
that he will use in the same way that he used Paul. It comes through a powerful conversion. It comes through a powerful infilling with the Holy Spirit. But we can see that Paul, as theoretically an outsider, although he was an Orthodox Jew, and when you look at his history, and I'll deal with that later, but then you see what kind of a man Paul was, whereas the other 11 disciples were theoretically not particularly educated men, although one of them had been a tax gatherer, but, and Luke possibly a doctor, but you can see how God is to use someone outside the original 12. And that is a key for us today, that God in this generation will choose men and anoint them with the Holy Spirit to be like Paul, to reach the world for Christ. And I find this so interesting that we have to come next time into chapter 2. God bless you. Thank you. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. When you are committed to and support the gospel, then stand on this promise that when you give to the extension of the kingdom, God will supply all your need. Jesus called it giving and receiving. This year God has given us wonderful opportunities to preach the gospel in Armenia, Georgia and Poland. And we continue to support Ukraine by distributing humanitarian and spiritual aid. For 12 months, our staff have helped the displaced, vulnerable, and injured, supplying food and medicines. To make a donation, visit eurovision.org.uk forward slash donation. strength for now and for eternity. David will guide you through the Apostle Paul's letters to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. David has written this book to strengthen your faith at a time when everything around us is being shaken. Join David as he delves deep into the truths of the Bible. Order David's book, A Firm Foundation, by visiting our website, eurovision.org.uk forward slash shop. We would like to give you a free gift. David Hathaway's Prophetic Vision magazine is available free of charge. All you need to do is ask for it. This faith-building resource will show you the path to revival in your life and ministry. To receive this free magazine, visit eurovision.org.uk forward slash magazine.